Born in Canton, Ohio and raised walking distance from the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Rick Spielman has football flowing through his veins, which served him well during his 30-plus years evaluating talent and helping to construct NFL teams. But no one in this game is perfect. We had a grading scale of every player that we put a U on, which means an underachiever, which means he has all this physical ability, but the production never lived up to the ability. Most of those times, those guys eventually got exposed, and those were the guys that I missed on because you got so intrigued with the pretty prospect at the bar, uh, but really what, what was beneath all the beauty. And that's that's the difference. And every great player that I've ever been around, they had the unique physical traits, but they also had this drive that even separated them from other players in the NFL to take it to a different level. I'm Seth Levitt, a former member of the Miami Dolphins Media Relations Department. And today in the fish tank, OJ McDuffie and I are treated to an eye-opening perspective from the team's top personnel man from the 2000 to 2004 seasons. Dive in as Spielman covers everything from an overtime playoff victory in his first season in Miami to Ricky Williams retiring in his last. DJ Preach, play something that'll get him going. You're now diving into the fish tank. Sitting down with Seth Living, OJ, Juice Man, This is strictly for them true fans, yeah. golf fans. Number one, one, of course, y'all. This ain't no ordinary sports talk. Dive up in that fish tank. Welcome back to the Fish Tank right here on the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network. Seth Levitt, DJ Preach is in the back making sure everything works right. And then the toughest guy in the podcast business, just ask Dan Marino, he said so. OJ McDuffie, Juice. How you feeling today? What's up, Big Seth? You know, I'm doing good, man. You know, every time we get a chance to chop it up, man, with, with great people, man, I, you know, I'm always excited about it, man. So today is no different, brother. For sure. Well, it is a little different. So definitely a great person. We've had players. We've certainly had our share of players. We had a head coach recently, a starting quarterback. We've had a lot of different folks, but we have never had anyone from the personnel department, let alone a general manager. So Rick Spielman is slumming it with us today. Rick, how are you, <laughs> it's man? great. Yeah, I appreciate uh, coming on today. So uh, thanks for having me. Now I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, well, I totally put you on the spot. You were, yeah. we, we ran into you out at camp that day. <laughs> you sat as far away from the media as you could because you just wanted to actually watch some ball, take some notes, and here I come walking up to you. And you had this look like, what the hell? But, uh, you know, you were kind enough to, to say that uh, you'd love to come on. So we're excited to have you here. And as I said, look back and reflect on some of the good old days. Yeah, well, what you guys pay your guests, I should have stayed farther away from you. (laughs) (laughs) It's the podcast business, okay? We're not on those big TV networks like you. I know, that's right. Well, you know, Rick, I know Big Seth can't wait to get into some of this Dolphins talk, but, you know, he's going to have to wait a little bit. He's going to hang tight because we got two Ohio guys here, you know, ready to chop it up. You know, I mean, you were born in Canton, which, of course, we all know as you know, football heaven. And then you moved to Massillon at some point where you and your brother, Chris, who we'll talk about a little bit, too, today, uh, become high school legends, man. Explain to Seth, this this Floridian, explain to Seth what it, what football means to our part of the country, you know, and also tell us what the Spillman household was like when, you know, you got two linebacker brothers playing at a high level hanging out there. Yeah, no, we were very fortunate uh, to grow up in Ohio because it's such a tradition and high school football is, you know, the king in Ohio, especially where we grew up in in Canton. And we grew up in Canton, Ohio. My dad was a high school football coach. So me and my brother, ever since we've been able to walk, I remember two years old, my mother taking us out to high school football practice just because she didn't want us around the house all day. So we'd hang out, (laughs) (laughs) hang out with our dad. And then after practice, uh, because they had a bus, because it was a Timken High School, where he was a head coach. Uh, he coached at Kent McKinley, uh, and then eventually went on to Maslin. So, and actually, he started out at Canton Central Catholic and claimed to fame. He coached Alan Page when Alan Page was at Canton Central Catholic. Mm. So, oh wow! When I ended up in Minnesota, I had uh, heard a lot of great stories about my dad. Uh, and when Coach Page, uh, I should awesome. say uh, Judge Page, was playing there. But it was a, a great way to grow up. We've always been around football. I know if you ever heard the stories in Maslin, when a baby boy is born in Maslin, they get a 
football in their crib and it says, I'm a future Maslin Tiger. So uh, that's how serious uh, football was. And, but I always appreciated that. And I know my brother did. We were, you know, most of the time grew up about 12 blocks, 11 blocks from the Hall of Fame. So we'd walk down there, played high school football in that stadium. Uh, before we moved on to Maslin. So, and just remember how passionate the fans were, especially in Northeast Ohio about their high school football. And, you know, when I was in Maslin, uh, we had a live tiger that was a mascot. And uh, that's right. Everywhere we went on the road, that uh, tiger would be put in a cage in the back of a pickup truck and he would lead the... uh, He would lead the uh, charge to whatever high school stadium we were going to at the time. Who had to put him in the truck? Like, was that the scout team job? Like, <laughs> no, it was guys like Seth, you know, that. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Hey, they didn't put a football uh, in my crib. No, I can tell you that. No, hey, like, put the damn tiger in the uh, truck. Get Seth. He'll do it. He'll do anything. <laughs> Just give him a raw chicken and have him throw it into the uh, truck. And then a tiger will jump up and get it. But. But they used to have that tiger out at practice and they'd buy the tiger at the beginning of the the summer uh, when it was just a cub. So they would have it on a chain and it'd come out and, you know, chew up footballs and everything like that. Another thing, (laughs) but by the end of the season, the thing had grown. Those things get pretty big in a short (laughs) amount of time. (laughs) Then they would donate it uh, to the zoo and then they would get another uh, cub. But the other thing that was really unique about Maslin football uh, Republic Steel, there was a steel mill kind of across the river from where we practiced. And after the morning shift got off uh, around 2.30, 3 o'clock, we would be practicing. So all the steel mill workers would come over, put up lawn chairs on a hill and uh, have a beverage or two after a hard day's work in a steel mill and sit there and watch high school football practice all the time. And yes. you didn't go anywhere without being recognized as a Maslin Tiger. So, and then I know eventually when one of the greatest memories I have is me and my brother playing together on that same high school team. And Chris was such a good player. He was one of the only sophomores that ever started in Masson history back in the day. So I was a quarterback. He was a linebacker. He played some running back, but sharing that experience with him at that level of a high school program was uh, pretty unique. Man, Seth, you have no idea. Everybody talks about some of these schools down here, man. Maslin was the school in Ohio. I mean, you talk about football, you talk about Maslin. I mean, they have a, a damn tiger, Seth. Every year they get a brand new tiger for football season. You know what I mean? So, uh, I went to Piper High School in South Florida, and we were the, the, the Bengals, but they were not putting a tiger anywhere near it. In fact, the only thing close to our stadium, there's a septic tank right next to our football stadium. So that tells you what Dude. we were dealing with. Yeah, and on top of that, man, Rick, how many, I was trying to tell Seth, explain to him, how many seats, how many people came to your games? Yeah, every we, we, it, it was Friday? crazy. And you, you've seen the stadium where the Hall of Fame game is played. But Maslin has a stadium, and I think it was one of the first high school stadiums that actually built suites. You know, but we would average, you know, the Maslin-McKinley game that's been going on for, I don't know, 120 100 some years. years yeah. Now. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you couldn't get a seat at that game, and you're talking about 25,000, 30,000 people at the games. And we would average, depending on who we were playing, up to ten to 15,000 per game because that was what was in town. It was a town of 30-some thousand people at the time. And I just remember at practice, you look across the river, and there's a steel mill, and you look to the uh, across the road, and there's the uh, meatpacking plant, Superior Meatpacking Plant. So you had your choice. You're either going to get out of Maslin playing football or you're going to end up in one of those two spots. So it was was a pretty good, uh, pretty big motivator. And uh, the other thing that was pretty unique about it was that at the time, Cincinnati Moeller was rolling. Uh, That was Jerry Faust. And I remember playing against them twice in a state championship game. And they were recruiting from all over the country. I mean, there were guys from Kentucky, guys from Texas that they would kind of get host homes and, you know, and it was a parochial school. So they cheated by recruiting. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't have a district lines. So there weren't I academic remember, scholarships, Rick. That's not what those were. Oh yeah. No, it was purely, yeah. Their, their, their chess team was outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> they were pulling people in from New York and everywhere. Uh, they kicked our <laughs> <laughs> But uh, 
So Maslin started moving people into the school district and eventually they got nailed for it. But I remember I was uh, playing at Canton Timken my freshman or sophomore year and my dad was still the high school football coach and my brother was just coming on the scene as a pretty good football player about in eighth grade. And we eventually, somehow my dad ended up getting an assistant athletic director job at Maslin and me and my brother end up getting a house there in the district and uh it was amazing how the local bank and boosters were able to financially <laughs> support you on a down payment out of the house in the school district because i remember walking out of practice i never grew up with any of these dudes where they all come from Unbelievable. half of them had beards at the time too so yeah very similar to Piper High School, no. even if that high school still exists. Well, they're 3-0 and right now, but uh, we had a 26-game losing streak during my era, and I didn't even play. <laughs> Thank were, God. Those are the good guys, right? Those are the guys who were any good. God, you imagine if you played. <laughs> oh, too funny. Um, you know, Rick, I remember, I remember in high school when I played, you know, high school football was so incredible, you know, in the state of Ohio, obviously, that, um, you know, I remember finally, you know, my sophomore year we went 10 and 0 didn't make the playoffs because we didn't have enough computer rankings my junior year we um lost in the state semifinal and then my senior year we actually made it to the championship game against columbus academy and before the game we got a tour of the ohio state locker room and your brother chris man you know he was you know he was the biggest buckeye at that point that anybody knew right you know we've had all the great buckeyes always starting back you know from my days when i remember archie and those guys and all the way up through your you know, through your brother and guys like that. But I went to his locker and don't tell him this, all right? Because he's still bigger than me and could probably kick my ass, right? I went to his locker and there was a loose screw hanging out in his locker. So I, I grabbed that shit and took it with me, man. So if he's missing a screw, if he's missing a screw, I'm, I'm the guy now that can that can admit it, you know, uh, 34 years later, all right? Well, they said the way he played, he was missing a screw anyway. So he's <laughs> still missing it. Was his, it was his, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, there was a screw loose the way he played. So actually, he should give you credit for his career for stealing that screw out of his locker. <laughs> Juice, do you still have the screw? Where's the screw? Man, I wish I my mom probably got it put away somewhere. I probably oh, do have it somewhere for sure. That is, yeah. He funny. hung up his Boswell poster with it, probably. I can tell Chris that. <laughs> oh, that's too good. That's too good. What's up? I'm John Wall, and I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. Everyone, please welcome Coach John Calipari. We're getting beat by 18. My first game in Kentucky. They're saying cows are bust. You can't coach. This is crazy. John Wall runs down the floor and makes a buzzer beater. Yep. You remember that, John? That's my first game win I ever made. Remember you said you never seen me do that. Ladies and gentlemen, DeMarcus Boogie Cousins. I called Boogie. I'm like, yo, bro, I'm about to commit to Duke. And I hung up on him. <laughs> bro, I'm talking about, do you want to tell me how many times he called me all type of names? Bro, you really sold me out. You doing this. <laughs> <laughs> bro, I was sick. I remember that like yesterday, man. Love you, John Wall. Thanks, Coach. Love you, too. You made me everything I am today. Nah, you made me. You made me. I love it. Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't even posted to my my dance, bro. (laughs) Well, look, you talked about the competitive environment, and and certainly uh, I imagine it was in the household as well as, uh, you know, on the field there. And fast forward to 1988, and you and your brother end up you're both in Detroit, you know, and you're both kind of getting your chance to live out this NFL dream. Chris comes in as, you know, a second round pick that year and and obviously went on to have this incredible playing career. And your NFL journey took a different different turn. What was that like to first and foremost share in that experience to go to camp and, and be in Detroit there with your brother, your little brother. Right. But then at the same time, kind of facing the end of the pursuit of your playing career and the shift into a a whole other way to be involved in the NFL. Yeah, that was a little bit crazy because uh, when I came out, I I went to Southern Illinois at the time, and we were in a Missouri Valley Conference, and then it dropped down to one double A, which is a tier below what the Power Five is right now and everything. But we were playing Kansas, New Mexico State. I remember going to play in Illinois. You know, we played a lot of Florida State one year. So we played a lot of big schools, but we dropped down a tier. And that's the year we actually ended up winning a national championship and had like five guys 
drafted off or signed as, as free agents off of that roster. And we had a number one pick who was actually from Youngstown, Ohio, a corner named Terry Taylor, who ended up being the number one pick for uh, Seattle Seahawks that year. So I remember I went in as a quarterback. That's the only reason I went to Southern Illinois. And then uh, they said, you're going to be a quarterback. Everybody else that was recruiting me wanted me to play linebacker or safety. So I said, I'm going to, I thought I was Dieter Brock of the Canadian League, <laughs> the six foot white corner that can throw the ball over. To, oh, sure. There's a, I'll, I'll give you a quick recruiting story. I remember, and this is relates to the Hurricanes, my senior year, they had, you know, all the college uh, coaches are come in before they go to training camp and going through uh, looking at recruits and things like that. And Miami, uh, University of Miami of Florida came in and talked to me. And I was like, wow, I don't know. Because that was before Miami was really on the map at the time, right. back in the 80s. And I think Howard Schnellenberger might have been there during that time, if I, if I recall. That sounds about right. And so I said, that, that'd be pretty cool to go to Miami. So I uh, thought... They, they gave me a talk, and then they said, well, we got to go look at a couple more guys. So they went up the street to this high school called Boardman, Ohio. and Youngstown I, Boardman, yeah. And <laughs> I never heard back from Miami again. I was like, <laughs> what the hell? They just, like, gave me all this recruiting pitch. I got a letter from them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, hey, we're interested in you, and the 10,000 other guys were recruiting. Right, hang it up with that screw that OJ. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And uh, so I found out that they found another quarterback in Ohio that they thought was better than me. Does anyone have a guess who that was? I think we know. Bernie Kosar. (laughs) Bernie Kosar. (laughs) Only because he's been on this show, right? Yeah. (laughs) I guess they knew what they were doing, Rick. Yeah. Well, apparently. (laughs) So so when I I graduated from Southern and then I uh, ended up signing as a free agent with the uh, San Diego Chargers at the time. And I remember that's before they had OTAs and everything. They had 250 guys in a training camp. So they just Mm. beat the hell out of you. Uh, but I went out to the first mini camp and I just remember um, I'm looking across and I was in a one-on-one drill and I was covering a tight end and I was like, I don't know if this is for me or not. And I was like, <laughs> right across from me was Kellen Winslow and Dan oh, Faust was a quarterback. So I said, should I cover him? Should I ask him for his autograph? <laughs> should I like, have him catch the ball? So I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to hurt him. You know? oh, and man. I got spun around like a top pretty quick. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I said, I don't know where this is going to go. Uh, so I ended up getting cut, cut out there and then signed by the uh, Lions uh, during the strike year. But I didn't go across the strike lines because I was still in grad school, finishing up my master's at Ohio State. Nice. And so uh, I stayed in school, finished up my master's, and then started to work out because that was my brother's year that he was coming into the draft. So I would piggyback workouts when coaches came through, like when they had pro days and things like that. So I remember, because me and my brother are probably the best of friends, talked to him, just talked to him this morning, uh, in fact, talked to him almost on a daily basis. Uh, but we were working out together. And the Detroit was there, uh, Hank Bulla, uh, Dick Duran. There was a lot of defensive coordinators that came in to work out Chris. And it was just Chris working out this day. So I went in and I said, can I work out? So the one thing that I knew is I was always faster straight ahead than Chris. And I could always jump higher than Chris. I just was born with a hair and a good looks. He was born bald, but with a change of direction and instincts that are are, are a requirement for the position. It's a give and take, Rick. It's a give and take. Yeah. So where are we going from here? I mean, I was like, okay, I'll take the hair and the looks. Okay. You can have the change of direction and go ahead and do what you do. So, but we were doing this drill and you had to put your foot on the line and you had to take three hops to cover 10 yards. So I go up first and my first hop was at three and a half. My second hop was almost at at seven and a half. So I knew I had 10 yards on the third hop. And Chris had went previously and he'd only gotten to nine yards. And this was the third thing I was going to beat him in because I just ran 40 faster than him. So on my third hop, I'm up in the air like this. And I'll see out of the peripheral vision of my, I see a clothesline come right across my neck (laughs) and in midair, he hit me like this and said, you're not effing beating me again and anything else. You know? 
I went down. I got a call the next day. I was signed by the Lions as a free agent. And Chris Wait was eventually. All the draft. scouts are around watching this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a no holds bar back then. It wasn't ESPN. This was just, hey, do what you got to do. But I, I'll never forget him hitting me midair on when I was going to beat him on the, on the jump. But oh, that's, uh, oh, that's hilarious. But yeah, we ended up in, in training camp together, and then uh, I ended up getting cut. And uh, you know, uh, he went on and had a great NFL career before he ended up breaking his neck. But Detroit had called me, and because I was getting my master's in exercise physiology and biomechanics, strength training was just starting to come uh, as part of it. So they called me, "Would you be interested in a strength training job?" And at the time. I had taken on like an assistant athletic director role at a community college in Columbus called Columbus State. And then I, I was then they decided not to interview me because they said there'd be a conflict of interest between me and my brother. And then uh, about a month and a half later, they called and asked if you'd be interested, if I'd be interested in being a scout. They were going to have a scouting position open. And I said, listen, I said, you cut me as a player. You didn't interview me as even the strength coach. I said, either send me a contract or don't ever call me again. And I hung up on him. <laughs> and then 15 minutes later, I got a, a, a contract uh, from them on the fax machine because we didn't have yeah. <laughs> internet right. at the it time. It wasn't an email. <laughs> no, it wasn't email, it wasn't internet. <laughs> it wasn't even a cell phone. So, right. So the next the thing, landline, I, the landline yeah. conversation. So I, I, I called my wife, and she actually worked at the same school I was working at. She was in the working in the uh, public relations department, and uh, she wrote grants for the school and everything like that. And I said, "Hun, uh, I'm probably going to resign here and put my two weeks' notice in. I'm going to be an NFL scout." So, wow. and that's kind of how I got my foot in the door and, and got started. Unreal. Wow. That's that's a, that's a great story. So, I mean, seven years as a scout there, right? Yeah. I, well, 31 total in the NFL. So, well, I'm talking about just in Detroit, Detroit, and then a few years in, in you know, Chicago as director of pro personnel. Yeah. And then it came down to Miami and then, uh, and then, uh, ended up. Oh, in- yeah. Seth's been waiting on this point right <laughs> here. He's been waiting on the Miami trip. Tape for crying out loud. <laughs> All right, go, yeah. Seth. You have at least can you? No, get- no. So yeah, Miami in two thousand. You you reunite with Dave Wanstead, right? Yeah, to- yeah. Well, I was with him in in Chicago, and it was funny. I never like even when I was in Detroit, and I was uh, actually start out as a combine scout, then worked my way up to a college scout. Then I was working with Kevin Colbert. Uh, who just was a longtime GM and with the uh, Steelers just retired this past year. I was his assistant in pro on the pro personnel side. So I learned that side, started learning some contracts. And then uh, just out of the blue, Mark Hatley had taken over in Chicago and asked me to come up and see if I'd be interested in being a director of pro personnel. I eventually ended up getting hired there. And then when Dave left and Dave took over down with the Miami Dolphins as a head coach, he asked me to come to be his uh, as vice president of player personnel. So I ended up running the personnel department. That's how I ended up down in Miami. Yeah. And the two of you guys wasted no time. I mean, you had big, big things to do right away. I mean, the first order of business, you know, was the transition from Dan Marino to Jay Fiedler. I mean, please talk about that experience because that had to be an incredibly tough decision. And, you know, and, and, and on top of that, I couldn't imagine how you guys had to figure out who was going to be his replacement at that point as well. Well, thank God I got hired right after that decision was being made. So. <laughs> you didn't have to wear that on your back. Huh? No, I didn't have to. Yeah, I didn't have to wear that one. But I, you know, Jay was uh, was such a great guy and had a very good career. Um, but how do you replace a Dan Marino? I mean, that's that's almost impossible to do um, because of who Dan Marino is, you know, not only what he did on the field, but off the field, too. That's that's almost unfair to try to make any comparison on anyone coming in to try to. But we did win a good amount of games while we were down yes, there, sir. you know, and then uh, then Mr. Heisinger decided to make a change as we kind of went forward and kind of restructure things. And then uh, then uh, eventually brought in Coach Saban which is another unique story so that we'll get into. Yeah, we definitely we, we, we like unique it. stories. We love unique stories. Go ahead, Rick. So I, I, I just remember it was like we were going through and then, you know, it was interesting. Is it like it, 
we had won a uh, – I'd never forget the playoff game we won. And Lamar Smith, I think, was our running back at the time. Uh, uh, OJ, you maybe remember that. And we beat Indianapolis. When, uh, yeah, I had a, I had a couple catches in that game. You had I a couple two. blocks in that game on that 17-yard <laughs> run. Yeah, a couple Absolutely. blocks. Yeah. And that was maybe one of the, the best games I thought we played because uh, that was a yeah. grinder game. And they were a very good football team too. And then we, I can't even remember. You don't remember the losses as much as the wins, but we lost the following week. Uh, oh, I remember that remember one. Who we? It was in Oakland, yeah. and it was ugly. Oakland. Oh, gee. Ugly, yeah. ugly loss in Oakland. Thanks, yeah. Rick. That's why I, I – yeah, I didn't even remember it, uh, yeah, so Yeah, we always <laughs> try to put that out of our memory. I remember that damn flight home, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, that was a, that's a long flight home. But eventually, you know, when Dave left in the midseason and Jim Bates took over, and then um, – what was I think that was the time when Eddie Jones and we we and Brian Wiedemeyer and myself we then we started going through the coaching thing and putting stuff together and and Eddie Jones and uh, Russ Hissel who was one of the probably the nicest uh, men I've ever been around and uh, went out and hired Nick Saban because of Eddie's ties with LSU and uh, I remember going down to LSU that year once Dave had uh, stepped aside and knew we were going to be in a coaching search, I actually had went down and scout was scouting at LSU and went in and talked to coach Saban about potentially ever jumping into the NFL again and respecting that, you know, he still had stuff to do at LSU. So, uh, but I knew that the relationship with Eddie Jones had down there and eventually uh, Nick ended up up in uh, Miami as the, uh, as the head coach and kind of overseeing the, the, everything from A to Z. And we worked together for six months. Uh, and it could be, uh, you know, very spicy, I guess would be a, as, as ever. Spicy. That's a new one. I like it. <laughs> I'm not using all the old terms, yeah. but I learned more football from coach Saban than I ever did from a head coach. Cause wow. I remember sitting in his office and watching hours and hours of, we didn't have all the computerized stuff. So we'd make cut up tapes and then me and Coach Saban would sit there and watch him in his office at night and explain to me what he wanted, what he was looking for. You know, and then after the draft, I did get fired. He brought in, wanted to bring in his own people, which is fine. That happens in the NFL. But when I just got released after 16 years in Minnesota, one of the first calls I got was from Coach Saban. No kidding. And yeah, in fact, I was the first consulting job that I took was with Alabama and offered me, so I'm doing consulting work with Alabama right now. And uh, Coach Saban, I, I don't know how to describe it, his way of saying I probably shouldn't have let you go at the time that I did, you know, had mentioned that several times since I've been through Alabama. Now I'm, I'm helping him on the uh, as an NFL consultant for him and uh, his players. Unbelievable. Full circle. Yes. So you're the reason for their success, huh, Rick? I get it now. So no. It. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I, no, I was like. <laughs> I say take coach, it. Coach. Take it, right? <laughs> if he listens to the fish tank, we'll deal with it at that point. So like Harvey <laughs> taught me, it's right until someone proves you wrong. Take the damn credit, Rick. <laughs> so look, I'm going to yeah, go back a little absolutely bit. Absolutely no. <laughs> What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. Everyone, please welcome Coach John Calipari. We're getting beat by 18. My first game in Kentucky. They're saying, Cal's a bust. He can't coach. This is crazy. John Wall runs down the floor and makes a buzzer beater. Yep. You remember that, John? That my first game win I ever made. Remember you said you never seen me do that. Ladies and gentlemen, DeMarcus Boogie Cousins. I called Boogie. I'm like, yo, bro, I'm about to commit to Duke. And I hung up on him. <laughs> Bro, I'm talking about, do you want to tell me how many times he called me all type of names? Bro, you really sold me out. You doing this. <laughs> Bro, I was sick. I remember that like yesterday, man. Love you, John Wall. Thanks, Coach. Love you, too. You made me everything I am today. Nah, you made me. You made me. I love it. Check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, DraftKings YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. It wasn't even supposed to be That's my That's my game. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think you should. I want to go back a little bit because we kind of breezed through it, but it was such a glorious moment. And and again, that first year that you were here, we won five out of our first six, eight out of our first 10. We finished 11-5 and we get to that game where we're hosting the Colts in, in the uh, the AFC uh, East. We, we won the AFC East, so we hosted the, the wild card game there. And everybody remembers exactly what you just described. Lamar had over 200 yards rushing. 
and we're in overtime and the guy could barely stand up, but he rumbles and stumbles and, and Deion Dyer falls down and gets back up and still throws a block and juice is blocking downfield and Lamar, he, he won't be denied and he gets into the end zone. And there is this great view from the end zone looking, you know, from the goal line behind the goal line, looking out and you can see our entire sidelines going ballistic juice is running across because you were there and you're celebrating your hand in the air. And all I see through all of the noise is Rick Spielman with his arms up in the victory sign. You've got, I don't know if you remember this, Rick, you're wearing a white long sleeve shirt. We ended up putting that picture on the cover of the media guide. It's an amazing photo. So I just want to see if you even remember it and kind of what you were feeling. You know, here you are, your your first year in Miami, and as you said, it was the best game we had played all year. What's good? What as a as a personnel guy? We, you know, the players have given us their perspectives, but as a personnel guy, what what's going through your mind and the emotions in that moment? You know, the thing is, and I don't remember that picture to be honest with you oh, at it's all. It's amazing. Uh, but when you're on the front office side, it's a little bit of a helpless feeling. Because once the roster set and you can tweak it here and there as you go through the season, depending on injuries and that, but it's basically coaches and, and players in because there's not much you can do. You're not in the game plan. You're not playing the game. You're not making adjustments at halftime. You're not making adjustments on the sideline. And you truly don't have any control over what's going on. And you're almost looking at it like everybody else is looking at it. You know, you had a big impact on who's on the field and who's playing and, and things like that. But once that kickoff goes, and I always believe this, uh, and we had a great group of guys there too, is that my job is pretty much done. I'm already working on next year's draft and doing everything else. Right. So I'm just sitting there and, and watching like everybody else with no impact on the game whatsoever. Uh, but the emotion that comes over, the only other emotion I really had that I felt like that was, the and been through a lot of tough great wins and tough losses was that Minneapolis miracle when we beat the uh, Saints but I always felt that the coaches and everybody and, and Juice you can tell me if I'm wrong or not but once the game started that was those guys on the field that cared for each other that were fighting their ass for each off for each other and if you can get a group of players that cared that much for each other that wanted to hold each other accountable that if someone's having down, hey, I'm going to pick you up, just keep going there. But those guys are a band of brothers on that field, and that's what always fascinated me to see these players come together and yeah. just on game day, and once that kickoff started, it was in their hands. You know, I understand you had to execute the game plan and the calls and all that, but truly that brotherhood of playing for each other and leaving body parts on the field mm. all over this country – uh, for each other something that's very unique and something I don't think people really recognize unless you've actually like Juice had played the game and understand what that feeling's like on the field. Yeah, Rick, I try to tell people that all the time, man. So many people, and I, I tell them they're liars, uh, say they play this game for free. You know what I mean? Nobody, this game is about, yeah, they wouldn't, no, nah, no. Nah, I'm going to tell you what, it takes a lot. It takes a, a certain mental, physical, you know I mean? That brotherhood, all that stuff it, it takes to, you know, to get out there day in, day out with the aches and pains and bruises and, and breaks that you have, you know what I mean? And you do it for your brothers. That's why you do it. Some people do it for different reasons, obviously, especially when they get to the NFL level. But before that, it's all about your brotherhood. Right. And that's something, I don't know, that's what, you make sports and I know just cause I the football, that's what makes it so unique is because I don't know if you can get that same experience sitting in a boardroom at IBM. I don't think you can or right. no. Right. And you, I don't see, think all, you hear it from parts. former players, even guys who go on to be very <laughs> right. successful post-career, nothing ever matches uh, what they got in that, whatever that short window was that they got to play. So you hear it all the time. Yeah. And that's what I thought the unique perspective from my part was to see that all come together and to say, hey, you had a piece or a part of putting this team together and putting this group of men together that care that much for each other that no matter what happens, they're going to have each other's back as you go through the ups and downs and the adversities of a season. That's and awesome. that's to me, was the most rewarding thing that it, that, 
that I got out of my job. Yeah, I think, Rick, you have a unique perspective, too. I mean, you you, know, you play the game. You know the game. You play at a high school that demands a lot. You can recognize talent. Some people just, just can't see guys. You can see guys that can play football. You see guys that go out there and measure well. You right. know what I mean? And, and that's, that's, that's huge right there. Can you play football or not? And that's a huge part of what you do. Right. And it's like, that's the thing that you have to be very careful of is, and not to go down a different rabbit hole here is, but when we were doing evaluations and personnel, and that's the part that separates the good from the great, in my opinion, is that do they truly play the game for free and all, all that stuff, but they truly love playing the game of football. Because once you get to the NFL level, in my opinion, that's when it starts weeding people out. You can only rely on your natural athletic gifts and God-given talents for so long before you start to become exposed. And the players that I missed on were maybe leaning towards the intriguing physical traits, and, and but did they truly have passion for playing that game on Sundays? And we did a bunch of studies and analytics and things like that. And we found out every player that we had a grading scale and every player that we put a U on, which means an underachiever, which means he has all this physical ability, but the production never lived up to the ability. Most of those times, those guys eventually got exposed. And those were the guys that I missed on because you got so intrigued with the pretty prospect at the bar. Uh, but really what yeah. was, <laughs> right? Yeah. what, what yeah. was beneath all the beauty, you know, yeah. and that's, that's the difference. And that's every, an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. And every great player that I've ever been around, they had the unique physical traits, but they also had this drive that even separated them from other players in the NFL to take it to a different level. You know, the way they practice every, the best example I could ever give of guys practicing that were elite players. When I was in Detroit, they were played, the Pistons were rolling at the time. That was back when the bad boy days and they played in the Silverdome and our offices were in the Silverdome. So I snuck out and watched Michael Jordan and they had a practice before they were playing the Pistons that night. And after their practice, and he was lathered up. I mean, this was like supposed to be a shoot around at nine or 10 in the morning. And after they got through everything, everybody left and he stayed there and he dribbled the ball up and down the court, full speed in a full lather, taking shots and visualizing everything that he was going to do that night. And I was like, that's Michael Jordan. And he's going, everybody else left, but he's still in the gym, right? getting ready for what he had to do tonight. They played Larry Bird in the, in the Celtics that year. And when everybody left, Larry Bird just sat there and had a ball. All he did was shoot three-pointers for another 45 minutes after. Just kept going around the arc and kept shooting, kept shooting and shooting. So at a very young part of my career is like that separates the good from the great, in my opinion, because if you're seeing guys that are that unique in their in their sport or that level, yet they're the ones that are staying out the longest or staying out extra after everybody has left in the gym to even be better than they, they are and always trying to improve that, that always had a very big impression and a lasting impression on me. Yeah, Rick. Well, you know, I got a piggyback off of that, man. Cause you talk about some of this greatness, man. And, uh, you know, as a doll fan that I am, I have to go back and think about some of those decisions made, you know, in greatness, Drew Brees is out there, but for the Dolphins, we took Jamar Fletcher. Can you just give us a little bit on how that decision was made? Just because, you know, I, I like Jamar, but I mean, I thought he was going to be great as probably as you did. But what what went into that decision on picking him and then Drew being out there later who yeah. achieved that greatness you're talking about? Yeah, what what you do and, and how these meetings work is it's a collaborative effort from everybody. So a lot of times, you know, how the front office works is basically the personnel department is out scouting and evaluating players, and technically during the fall, scouting and putting grades on players for the league because you want to put their true value. Is this guy going to be a first-rounder? It doesn't have to be for us for someone, second-rounder, however you want to put it. Then when the coaches come into play, they start coming in at around the, the combine. Uh, then they start you know, really big in the pro days. Then you start marrying the personnel department and the coaching staff department together. 
and trying to come up with, and this is, to me, the mistakes that you make are the ones that you grow and learn from. So I remember sitting there uh, talking with the uh, with the coaching staff, and they really thought we needed a corner. And then everybody had the big question on Drew Brees. Was his arm talented enough? Uh, There's no question about his production at Purdue. Was he big enough? Because there was, there was very rarely a six-foot pocket-passing quarterback that really played in the NFL at the time. So you're asking yourself, is this going to be the exception to the rule? You know, and I remember, you know, even when he was out and drafted in San Diego, he didn't start out really too strong. And then he got his opportunity to, to go. And then, you know, the rest is history. But there are always exceptions to the rule. And the question is, hopefully you've done enough of your due diligence and things like that. And just in the quarterback position in general, a lot of the things I've learned over the past 31 years is I remember going and watching Jamarcus Russell's workout. And then two days later up at Boston College watching Matt Ryan's. Now, if you just Mm -hmm. went and watched that workout, it was night and day difference. I mean, Matt Ryan's ball was wobbly a little bit this, but what I learned and I learned through mistakes too is as especially at the quarterback position, it's not all physical ability, even though you see a lot of great athletes playing the quarterback position now that weren't back OJ when you were playing, it's totally different. I mean, you, you had a lot of very, uh, typical prototype quarterbacks at Penn State. Yeah, statuesque. Yeah. <laughs> statuesque. I'm trying so to nice. be politically correct here, yes. <laughs> Jeez. I don't want Seth to fire me off my first show here with you guys. <laughs> I don't have that decision-making power, Rick. <laughs> well, apparently you did in the stands <laughs> to get me out. No, it was just like sending me to put the tiger in the back of the truck. That's all. Okay. Seth will do it. He'll ask him. <laughs> but uh, a couple of the critical things that I really learned at the position, first, that was the physical thing. Second is how they perform and critical situations during the game. But uh, one of the mistakes that I made too, is I always put a point of emphasis on intelligence, which is important for the position. And I've been in quarterback interviews and, you know, we'd have the offensive, the players sitting there, we'd have the offensive coordinator, whoever it was at the time, go up and do an installation for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. We'd give the quarterback pen and paper to see how he was going to take notes if the coach is installing, if he's part of our team and the coach is installing on the board. And then right after that, you know, they would put in passing concepts. This okay, if this if the pressure is coming from this side, okay, your hot goes over to here just to see. So we've had I've had quarterbacks go up there and did it better than the coach did as far as installing. I said, God, this guy is brilliant. You know, he just in 20 minutes, he can do it better and recalled everything the coach just put in. But the mistake I made was it's not just the intelligence side of it. It is the processing and how quickly they can process. So they can sit there and talk about that for 20 minutes and sound like, a, you know, the greatest, the, the Andy Reid of, of coaching. But when they got to take it from under center and they have to do that same processing in two and a half seconds, knowing there's a bunch of dudes on the other side of the ball that are have bad intentions for you. Then all of a sudden that's a whole different ball game. I mean, (laughs) so that's why race board now, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But that's where we started to really try to evolve. And over the last couple of years, especially evaluating that position is how do you measure that? So we started right. coming up with different type of testing, whether it's cognitive, things like that, uh, to measuring mental quickness or processing, because you can be smart, but if you have to do that in two and a half seconds in those circumstances, your brain may shut down, you know, but if you can go up there and, and, and talk for 20 minutes about something, you, then you're going to sound like the most intelligent person in the world. But that's something that you sometimes have to make mistakes in. Okay. And one theory hours had if I'm going to make a mistake we're going to we're not always going to be right but if we make a mistake then how do we rectify this so the next time we're in a similar situation that we don't make the same mistake again so we would spend more time on misses or 
mistakes that we made to go back and just tear it apart and reassess. And then how can we make sure we improve, whether it was medical, how we were testing guys, uh, how we were psychologically testing them, intelligence testing them and tear it down to the nubs and then build it back up to, I said, I always was, tell me where we made the mistake. Cause I don't know. I thought right. this was a good guy. Yeah. But what part of our process should have been a red flag indicator to us that he was not going to have success. And they're not always going to be hundred percent right too, because you're trying to make a subjective decision, but you're trying to do as many objective things as you can to minimize the risk of that subjective decision. If that makes sense. Right. It makes a lot of sense. Right. And you know, and let's let's be let's keep it one hundred, man. Nobody's a can't miss player in the NFL. There, nobody's like a player that's guaranteed that it's going to translate from their college days to their pro days. So I mean, everybody, everything's a crapshoot for the most part. But you try to, like you said, minimize some of the elements that you know that, that you want to take some of those great variables and apply them, and hopefully they give you a better chance of having a successful player. Right, and it, and it correlates too a lot with the coaching staff because yeah. You have to make sure from a schematic standpoint, that player may be a very good starter or a Pro Bowl caliber player in one scheme. But if you put him in a different scheme that does not match his physical skill set, he's probably going to be a backup and be considered a bust. So those are the things wow. that when you're trying to mirror everything together, that you also have to marry that up with the... Uh, with the coaching staff and with the systems in the uh, that you're running. Yeah, I think that scheme fit is so underrated, Rick. It really is, man. You know, I mean, I always, I always think about a guy like uh, Vince Young, you know, who played like in pistol or shotgun his whole career, and then they want to put him on the center, and they're expecting to get the same kind of guy. I think nowadays they're starting to adapt to that a little bit more, right, uh, using it more of the college game in the pro game so that they can see kind of the same player that they saw in college at the pro level. Yeah, no, it's, it's totally changed. And you see, and you're seeing, I think, especially the way the, the league is trending. Now you're seeing more and more younger offensive guru type guys, and even some of the defensive guys. But when I talk to all these coaches, it has changed from what it was back even 10 years ago, five years ago, because now you have to be able to adjust your scheme to the product that's coming up from the collegiate level to our level. So there's no more, uh, when you play OJ 1980s, 70s, whenever you play. Yeah, 90s, man. Come on, man. Oh, Come man, on. dude. Shot fired. He's... 1993 no. Miami Dolphins first round draft choice. Uh, 35, I was trying to subtract the years on your hat just to see. <laughs> There, there, there's not a lot of uh, statuesque Penn State type quarterbacks playing <laughs> in the collegiate level right. anymore. Now they're mob- the quarterbacks that have mobility. And, you know, you look at what Baltimore did with Lamar Jackson, because that was a big question. Will his game translate to the NFL? But Greg Rowan and, and Harbaugh, I thought those guys did a phenomenal job yeah. adjusting their scheme to fit what that quarterback does. But I think coaches are getting more and more comfortable with adjusting things to fit the personnel that's coming up through the the ranks. Rick, I don't know if you're doing a great job answering these questions or we did a great job game planning here, but one question just seems to roll into the next. So I, I definitely Well, it's that. not. I know how to BS my way through a press conference without <laughs> saying anything to kill time. I love it. I love it. No, so, well, look, we'll fast forward past that draft into the next year. And you were involved. In you know, biggest... you only got three minutes left on the meter, bud. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this will be this will be one where you can use up all the time. You were able to help orchestrate one of the biggest trades in the history of this franchise, and that was bringing Ricky Williams to Miami. And I don't know we could talk about that entire uh, that entire time in all of our lives in three minutes. But, you know, talk about a little bit of how that, how that happened, how that came to be. How rewarding is it? it you know, you talked earlier about watching the way you help put a team together and, and, and what happens on the field. How rewarding is it to be involved in a trade like that and those first two years, I mean, you had to feel like the smartest guy in the room, you know, when you see the way Ricky's playing. And then, you know, where did things go sideways? Yeah, no, it was, I'll never forget this because I knew the philosophy, again, matching up philosophies with the coaching staff. When Coach Wanstatt was there, our philosophy, we were going to be a physical team on D, always had good defense, but we were going to 
be a run oriented offense and then then take shots in the in the passing game off of that. So there was a unique opportunity uh, to get uh, Ricky Williams, who take everything away. You watch him on a football field, and when he's gone, he's maybe one of the best backs that you know. And I've been around Barry Sanders. I would have been around Adrian Peterson. I've been around some pretty good backs in my day, and I thought Ricky Williams was one of the best and up with those guys as far as talent goes on the yeah. field. But that it was amazing. That trade happened while I was on a Hertz bus going from a rent a car, uh, going to a, getting a rent a car because I was out at a pro day. So I was talking with uh, Randy Mueller, actually. So you're uh, on the shuttle. You're uh, at the airport. You're on the shuttle going to get on the shuttle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Just landed, got a phone call. I'm sitting on the shuttle bus. I've got that, like Billy Businessman sitting to the left of me. And uh, <laughs> and and Mama was six kids on the right of me trying to get to wherever she was going. And Unbelievable. Jumping in. And I'm sitting there talking on the phone and, and pretty much got most of that deal finalized. While, while I was on a Hertz rental car bus. Uh, it's amazing where deals get done. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, phone's it, never off, right? It no, can never be off. No, no. It was the, uh, it, it, ever since they invented that cell phone thing, it's been uh, 24-7. But, you know, we were able to get the deal done. And one thing that I always recall, because uh, Ricky was such a good person when you sat there and just talked with him. Yeah. And uh, just a, a freak, phenomenal talent. But the one thing that really caught me off guard a little bit was I remember the first time he came in and uh, got the deal done and, and everything. And he sat in my office and he was like, why'd you trade for me? You know, it was almost like a humble, like, am I as good as everybody thinks I am type personality? But maybe that's what made him so good was because you know, he always had, I thought he had that inner drive to be who he, to always be good and never thought himself, always thought him, he, he always had to go out and achieve more. Um, so I said, dude, you're one of the best, if not can be one of the best running backs in the, in the NFL and everything that you have done. But when he was rolling now in those two years, I mean, I think he had, and Seth, I don't recall, but did he lead the league or had like 1,700 yards rushing his first year? I think at 1,800. And, yeah, he led the league and 18 touchdowns. I mean, it was his, yeah. that first his year. His only negative, yeah, was just the the, the fumbles because he had such big, thick forearms. So we were trying to figure out how to, uh, yeah, the, the, the fumble thing. But then he, uh, you know, and then I remember getting a call right before training camp. And he was in all our OTAs. He was in off-season program. He was working his tail off. And then just out of the blue, right before we were going to training camp, I got a call from, uh, I believe, Drew Rosenhaus was his agent at the time. I got a call from Drew. It said, Ricky's uh, going to retire, and he's in, uh, in Australia right now. <laughs> and so that was an interesting phone call with the owner and with the uh, head coach. I could, interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you what. <laughs> Being that, that was hey, I'm gonna tell you this, Rick. You can blame Seth, by the way. <laughs> Wait, oh, don't do this to me, Juice. <laughs> you can blame Seth for Ricky's retirement, man. I blame him to this day. I blame his ass for to this day. Are you gonna tell him why? You know why, Big Seth? Are you gonna make Rick, me tell he him? He had why? a conversation with Ricky. Go ahead, tell him. So, you know, I, I left Harvey's department to go work for JT about a month before Ricky left for Australia. And uh, look at the look on Rick's face, man. I, I don't even know if I can tell him this story. <laughs> so, Rick, I went down to the locker room to tell the guys I was leaving. And Ricky said, why, why are you leaving? He asked me. And I told him, I said, I had spent my entire life. My dream was to work for the Miami Dolphins. I did it. I accomplished it. I loved it. I would never trade anything. I would never, ever go back and trade anything. It's, I did everything I wanted to do. But now it was time for me to do something else. And Ricky kind of looked at me and he, you know, he, he said he got it. So we had him on this show and, uh, you know, he attributed that as one of the factors in his decision-making. I think there were other factors involved. (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) You know, my ass is I'm like two hours over this alligator alley. <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, boy. Thanks a lot, Juice. Thanks. Yeah. Well, yeah, there were some other factors, too. You know, I know he wanted to make some more money. I know he enjoyed certain things recreationally. You know, there were some other factors here. We can't put it all on my back. 
Well, I, I know there's a job when you're done doing this and you've fulfilled your uh, <laughs> sense of accomplishment doing this job. Uh-huh. Maslin has a job in the summers for you. <laughs> that in the fall. Tiger Cubs? <laughs> Oh god. By October they're not cubs anymore, oh, but man. I would just okay. wear <laughs> Oh, it's September eighth now, so I think I, I, I get the picture. I get the picture. I, 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 I still know people in northeast Ohio. Oh shit. That's right. That's right. Oh great. Oh my god. I'm never gonna live this down. All right, Juice, what's next on the agenda here? We gotta we gotta no, let's keep wrap it this thing up, man. Rick, we're gonna wrap it up here real quick, man. Uh, we wrap up every episode with a fast paced two minute drill. Oh. And uh we know, you know, you look for players who can stand tall during most of the pressure pack situations and moments of the game. So here's your chance as well, all right? So we're going to put two That's minutes That's why on the they clock. moved me from defense, from quarterback to defense. <laughs> I was striving myself as I couldn't process shit. You were the guy on the seconds. board. You were really good on the board. I was the guy on the board. Okay. I was actually <laughs> describing me. Okay. okay. You look at That's a Rick Spielman right there. We can't. Now I so I've it. got 20 minutes to answer these. <laughs> we, got, we have time to edit. This isn't live. All right. There we go. Our high-tech clock. Preach is going to put two minutes All on right, the clock. We're going to put two minutes on the clock. Big Seth, get it started. Okay, here we go. Two-minute drill starts now. Rick Spielman, what was the best personnel decision you ever made with the Miami Dolphins? Um, Jeez. I would say if Ricky, if you didn't screw up Ricky Williams, I'd say the Ricky Williams trade. <laughs> all right, so Absolutely you can take credit right. since I fucked it up. It's all okay. You can... <laughs> all right. Yeah, the greatest running back in Dolphin history, in my opinion. That's why I feel like. All right, the one decision you could take back. I would say probably not drafting Drew Brees over Jamar Fletcher since you brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we might have trouble getting Rick to do a repeat appearance here on this show. <laughs> uh, too it's funny. going to cost you twice as much. Yeah. Right. <laughs> deal. That's a deal. Okay. More thrilling, knocking the snot out of a running back or seeing the player that you really want was still available on the board at your draft position? Well, since I was a stiff, I would take seeing the player I still want on the board because I had no chance of knocking that player. It's not of a player. I wouldn't have hit him. He would have went around me so fast. I can only imagine that feeling in that draft room, man. All right, two or false. Harvey Green is partially to blame for Matt Hasselbeck never becoming a Dolphin. <laughs> Harvey Green's partially impacted every this bad decision with the Miami Dolphins. Oh, <laughs> It's not just that one. I think we, we don't have enough time. <laughs> it is a two-minute drill. You're right. Okay. We won't paint you in the corner. All right. Speaking and of I love game, Harvey. Best uh, I've ever been around. Oh, we love him. We love him. All right. Looking back on it now, who was actually right in the company softball game squabble, you or security man Stu Weinstein? Oh, my God. That was Stu's fault. Do not. <laughs> one thing. Stu yelled bunt. I didn't know you couldn't bunt in, <laughs> in softball. So Stu bitched for two more innings. Yeah, so I ran down there and gave Stu a little elbow, oh, which just too, to send oh, a right. message. It's too funny. Final question. If Ricky doesn't retire before the 2004 season, the Dolphins would have won a lot more games. That's right. There it is. That's the two-minute drill. Rick Spielman, you survived it. You've been very kind to us in the, in so the face good, of a lot of bullets flying your way. But, man, it was so great to see you at camp and really appreciate you being here. Okay. Absolutely, All right. Man. I hope you guys – that was pretty fun. I hope you guys had a good time. That was, it was it. awesome. Oh, we had a great time. Thank you, fellow Ohioan. All right. I appreciate it, man. All right. Midney Lion instead of Buckeye, but that's fine. <laughs> hey, blame – hey, blame John Cooper. Blame John Cooper. Don't blame me, all right? Thanks for diving in, Rick. Okay, guys. All right. You're now diving into the fish tank. Sitting down with Seth Living, Seth. OJ, Juice, Juice Man, ooh, and this is strictly for them true fans, yeah. golf fans, number one, one, of course, y'all, this ain't no ordinary sports talk, dive up in that fish tank, go get your aqua orange, yeah, it's time to dive up in that fish tank, it's only legendary talking when you dive up in that fish tank, rocking with OJ and Seth when we dive up in that fish tank, Celebrate big or cry hard. Leave it all on the field. We're gonna try hard. Old school, a new school. 
mix it in. Feeling like we up close when we listening. Dolphins tales in Miami is the deep end. We vibing with our favorite players, no secret. We get with Seth and McDuffie, bringing up stories we never heard to the public. Bet we love it. Dolphins fans never budget. We loyal to the team, whether happy or we upset. We be like, what's next? Don't switch the subject. You know it's all about the fans. And if you ready for that water, time to dive in. Don't switch the subject. You know it's all about the fans. And if you down with Dolphins Nation, time to dive in. Don't switch the subject. You know it's all about them fans. You looking at that fish tank, it's time to dive in. Look at that fish tank. Go get your aqua orange. Yeah, it's time to dive up in that fish tank. It's only legendary talking when you dive up in that fish tank. Rapping with OJ and Seth, time to dive up in that fish tank. Don't ever add a tune, you about to dive up in that fish tank.